Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. In this episode, I talk to North Portland resident Michelle Dewberry. Michelle and her family have endured the ultimate sacrifice in the war against cars. In 2010, her husband Eric and her son Seamus were walking across the intersection of North Interstate and North Lombard when a man driving a car struck both of them. Eric sustained minor injuries, but her son Seamus died in the hospital one day later. He was just one year old. I spoke with Michelle about how her grief turned into activism, how elected officials and policymakers have responded to her pleas for help, how she feels about the pace of change for safer streets in Portland, and much more. We recorded this episode just a few blocks from the intersection where Michelle lost her young son, an intersection that, as you'll hear in our conversation, she still won't travel through more than a decade later. Michelle Dewberry, thank you for coming on the Bike Portland podcast. Good to have you here in our first recording in our little basement studio. Thanks for having me. You know, I feel like we've been sort of operating in similar spheres for at least a decade now. I think we have this shared thing about geography. I walk my dog a lot and I go by the intersection, you know, on Interstate and Lombard. Uh, And so it's something that I think about pretty often. So I think it would be helpful for people to sort of set a context. And I know you've told this story a lot and I appreciate you sharing it. Would you be willing to just sort of share with our listeners, you know, what happened on that day? Um, so it was 2010, um, almost 11 years ago now. And, um, my husband, Eric was walking home from the grocery store, um, through a marked crosswalk at North Interstate and North Lombard Avenue. And, um, a, a careless driver turned right through the intersection and struck my husband and my son who was in a stroller and another man in the intersection And, um, my husband received minor injuries. The other man, I think had a broken arm and our son was rushed to the hospital in an ambulance and he spent a night in intensive care. He had two surgeries and he died the next day. Wow. That is so, that is just so terrible. I, I, thanks for sharing that. I know that part of the work that you do, and this is why I didn't, I didn't feel sort of as bad asking you to share it because I know that part of the work you do is telling your story. And I know that that is like, you know, an important part of what you've chosen to do after that tragedy. I was curious if you could share how you were thrust into, you know, first of all, were you a part of uh, traffic safety activism at all prior to that? Was this something that you thought about? It wasn't something that I thought about in a political way. Um, I grew up in Montana and um, riding bikes when I was growing up was like something you did as a kid. And then it was something you did for like recreation. You know, you would go mountain biking or something. But um, growing up, it would have never occurred to me to ride my bike to work or to school. And then after college, I moved to New York City and experienced the exact opposite of that. So nobody I knew owned a car and everyone got around just fine. And it was awesome. And it was so liberating to not have to deal with the expense and stress of owning a car. Um, And so I moved to Portland really because it had great public transit. And then a few years after moving to Portland, I got married to a guy who was a bike messenger. And so he's like the real cyclist in our family. And a lot of our decisions around where to live and how we get around have been driven by 
his, um, like he just wants to ride his bike everywhere. But like I said, we were never political about it. We never would like go like to a public meeting and, you know, yell about bike lanes or crosswalks or anything. It was like a lifestyle choice. And really like, I always felt safe, um, in the first several years, including after our son was born. I never, I never worried about it. I took it for granted. Um, we lived in the Kenton neighborhood and there was, there was bike lanes and I was like, it's great. There's bike lanes. We can walk around with our son. We can, we can, um, throw him in the trailer and ride around. And I never really thought about it. And even after he died, I never, I didn't, I thought of it as just a, a random freak accident. And I think I even used the word accident Mm -hmm. up until like the last few years. Yeah. And you mentioned that there was an article that uh, an Oregonian reporter published uh, a few days after it had happened. And the the reporter seemed to be sort of processing his, a lot of his own feelings. It was very like a very subjective article, if I recall. And that was the tone that, that that reporter took Mm -hmm. was this sort of, you know, it's in God's hands. And and that is also how you you felt about it as well, right? So even yeah. like you're saying, even after it happened, that was sort of like your approach. So can you help me understand if there, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there was a switch because you're, you're certainly, I can tell by your Twitter feed and some of the work that you do that you've, you have become more of a sort of conscious activist around this stuff. But I'd like to know sort of how that transition happened or can you, you know, did it happen quickly? Did it take you months? Did you, uh, you know, how did your relationship with that tragedy change in sort of the immediate term afterwards? It's hard to pinpoint where things started to change, but um, I think really um, I finished working on this big insurance reform bill, and that was something I was working on for eight years. And that had to do with sort of the how the, the health insurance pays out, whether they pay out the person who did the hit, you know, person who was driving versus the victims in this case. Yeah, well... Um, it's, it's the pain and suffering settlement from the driver who's at fault. So our health insurance took away our, the pain and suffering settlement. So, um, we, everything is so expensive when, when there's a car crash and go ahead. Yeah, no. So it's like, it's almost like you didn't really have to maybe process the traffic aspect of it immediately because you swung into like, we've got bills to pay. We have this health. Totally. And of course- your son was in the hospital following it. So that was like an immediate concern. You went into like this health insurance mode. So in some yeah. ways that that health insurance activism or advocacy kind of mm-hmm. came to the fore initially, right? Yeah. I mean, it was such a, it was like a secondary trauma that I think in my head, I was like, well, I might not be able to prevent this from happening to someone else, like a crash that kills a kid, but maybe I can help them on the other side of it by making the insurance process a little bit easier. And the other thing I have thought about a lot is there wasn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there wasn't like a robust sort of like organized outrage, like ready to sort of show up and have a vigil or, you know, like there was no, nobody in my community, um, no politicians, no one was like expressing outrage at the built environment that I know of. That's an interesting topic. That's something I've definitely noticed through the years is that there's so many factors that go into how the community responds. And by the community, I mean, yeah, like you said, elected officials, activists, media. Um, but I think in your case, I think it's important for people to know, and this may figure into that, is that this didn't seem like, and I, I think we can 
reasonably assume that this wasn't some egregious situation that had to do with infrastructure that had been on the front page of Ike Portland as a problem or even been red flagged by the community or a person who is super drunk or super mm-hmm. careless, super reckless, right? So, and I guess you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it was an older person and mm-hmm. the, the story that was told was that they were just, well, you go ahead and share. So what was your understanding of the person that hit Seamus? So he was, he was elderly um, and he, he misapplied the pedals. So he was trying to hit the brake and he hit the accelerator, um, which is a really common thing, um, not just among elderly drivers. But I, I think a lot of people, I mean, we're all sort of scanning for a villain because we want to put our anger somewhere. And so I did have people in my life who really got upset about the fact that this man was driving at all. And initially, the police told us that he had some history of of careless or reckless driving that they were investigating. And so for a while, like the outrage was sort of flowing in that direction. And then as the investigation went on, we learned that he had no history of, of careless or reckless driving. It, it was, you know, he was just a man. He was going to get a hamburger at Wendy's, you know, like I couldn't be that angry at him. Yeah. And just to loop back and acknowledge your question about how the community responded you know, I think another big thing besides sort of the the characteristics of the of the crash was um, it was someone walking. Um, you know, walking as an advocacy, you know, things that happen on foot are totally different than bicycling. And it's a this is a national issue. I mean, there's a people may not even know there's a walking advocacy group in Portland that's that's I believe older than the Street Trust slash you know what we used to think of as the PTA. Um, and just, you know, walking is not considered this, you know, as sexy of a thing. So people don't identify with it. It's hard to rally members up to get, you know, excited about it. So it just means that when, 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 but, you know, people that are walking get hurt or, or killed in, in traffic crashes, you don't get as much of a response. So, but I did want to go back to, you know, this idea that you just thought it was this, or, you know, people in general maybe just thought it was this random thing. Once you hear it's an older person, and like I said, if there weren't these circumstances around drug, alcohol abuse, speeding, anything really wild, you know, people can get mad at the laws and regulation or lack thereof about how how we allow older people to drive. You know, I don't think you're going to drum up too much real interest and excitement about that issue. That's It's just of all the things people are thinking about, that's not that's not the one. So and Because... If we take away driving privileges from people, then we live, there's no way for them to live in these communities with dignity because they can't get around. Right, which I was going to say, I mean, there are systemic issues. And when I hear, even if it's so I could I think it could be reasonable to think that, well, why did this older person get flustered? And now if people have never been to this intersection of North Interstate and Lombard, you may not realize, but it's an extremely stressful Fluster inducing mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. intersection. Yeah. I mean, that's why when I walk by there, sometimes I'll just stop and look at it and like take a deep breath. That intersection could have caused the stress, right? So mm-hmm. there is a reason to think about the built environment. Yeah. Do you think about the intersection? Like, do you go by it still? How, do you have feelings about it? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, when I was pregnant with Seamus, I, the intersection is right in between a grocery store and our house. And so we walked through it all the time. I rode the max, which there's a big transit station right there. Um, 
And when I was pregnant with Seamus, I was crossing the street one time and people started yelling at me and I was like looking around. I had a walk signal and I had, I didn't know what was going on until a car just like rushed past me. It was so close. Like I could feel the breeze. Like I remember it blew my dress against my legs and, um, I just like kept walking, you know, I I would have thought I would have forgotten about that if Seamus hadn't died. But like I'm after he died, I started thinking about like all the crazy stuff I've seen in that intersection. And so I, I do think, and, and this is something, you know, I, I didn't, I don't think I thought about it in a, in a way that focused on infrastructure, I guess. I just was like, wow, that's like, that's crazy. A lot of weird stuff happens and we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's how I thought for a long time. Right. And, and just to finish this about this sort of infrastructure thing, it is, so interstate used to be I-5 way back in the 60s or whatever. So it's a relatively large street, but it but it's such a fascinating intersection with Lombard. And for folks who don't know, Lombard is a state highway. So it's sort of this freight corridor and it's a relatively big arterial street managed by the state. Um, and so it crosses with interstate. And like you said, there's a gas station, mini mart and a big shopping center nearby. So there's a high volume of and driving school. and a school on the corner. What's fascinating to me about that intersection, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about the intersection, but it's it, it, it's not your typical profile for danger because it attracts so many people. Right. Usually intersections that have a lot of people sort of have a built-in calming, especially ones that have half the right-of-way on interstate is a light rail line, right? But then I was thinking that what what's interesting about that is it, it it's because of the mechanics and sort of the characteristics of the intersection, it's relatively high volume and high speeds and just a bad culture around there, it seems like. Mm-hmm. All the presence of all those people create all, like you said, all these really crazy things that happen. They're jumping. It's a pretty big bus line. They're jumping the bus stop. They're jumping to the max line. Yeah. People are running to catch the bus, the max all the time. Yeah. And I don't like I realized um, actually Eric and I moved out of that house after the crash because we could not navigate our neighborhood or get anywhere without going through it. Wow. Um, or without taking like elaborate detours. And I still, um, I avoid that intersection, like coming home from the airport, I'll direct the cab driver to go a different route. It's become a place I avoid for, I mean, for obvious reasons, but, um, I still think it's just dangerous. Wow. So you don't even want to go back to intersection. No, I, I shop at that Fred Meyer and I go in the back way and I, you know, I, yeah, I don't, I avoid it if I can. So how, so how did you shift from just thinking this was a a random accident that, you know, nothing could have prevented this to seeing it a little bit more with a little more criticism, a little more, you know, skeptic, skepticism? So if I had to pinpoint, um, a moment, I think it, it's. I started to think about it when we started having this conversation about um, the I-5 Rose Quarter project. And I realized that the street where Seamus was killed was an ODOT road. Um, and then I started, you know, Vision Zero was in the news more. Um, people kept dying. <laughs> and I just started connecting the dots between um, all of the people who were dying on Portland streets and... Um, the, like the, it was happening on the same streets and the street where Seamus died. It's, I don't know if it's like in the top three, but it's definitely up there. Like a lot of people die 
not at that intersection, but on that street, I just started reading and I started following people on Twitter who are, you know, transportation experts. And I just started questioning a lot of my own assumptions about um, how, how the world should look when you're pushing a stroller with a baby in it. Um, I, you know, our neighborhood was full of kids and families. And if you put a state highway in between kids and families in a grocery store, probably the intersection should have better protections for people who are walking, pushing strollers, biking. And if you put a big transit station in the middle of an intersection with a state highway, you should probably have some traffic calming there. Yeah, it was a very gradual sort of evolution. Um, But I, I was just like, it was nice to see that so much was already happening and I could kind of plug my story in where it's useful. I didn't have to like take this on, like with the insurance reform bill, nobody else was talking about it. Nobody else was working on it. I couldn't get the media to cover it. It was just nice to see like this really active group of people who cared and, and a lot of intersections with other issues like climate. It was nice to see this community and that I could sort of parachute in once in a while and tell my story and have a big impact and maybe move the needle a little bit or change people's opinions. And I didn't have to do it full time. Yeah. And I got to say too, you did pass that insurance reform bill. So good work on that and congratulations. Thank you. You also got involved to some degree uh, in, in activism. I mean, it was probably hard. I mean, in traffic activism, right? I mean, it, I don't know what year it was. I mean, I think you, you started, you, you showed up on Bike Portland. I know it in 2019, which is probably after you, you really got involved with some of it. And I think the, the city of Portland made their Vision Zero declaration in, mm-hmm. in 2015, I want to say. But, you know, we're a Vision Zero city. And I remember, you know, in 2019, we did a story and you were testifying about the World Day of Traffic Remembrance at, at City Council. And they made a, a big proclamation. And Vision Zero itself, while a bold policy, if you really take it to the letter, like they've done in some countries uh, in Northern Europe, it's really just a proclamation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, inter- the, the intersection of Interstate and Lombard looks pretty much exactly the same as it did in 2010 when Seamus was hit. Are you, uh, you know, how do you, how do you feel about the pace of change in addressing this stuff in Portland? I think it's way too slow. It's too, I think it's hard for politicians because the, you know, all the money is on the side of fossil fuel infrastructure and roads and, um, you know, the people who, who want to get around by any other means that were just, it's like, we're up against so much. Um, and I remember testifying at city council in 2019 and it, it was me and there were other, other people from families for safe streets who had lost children. And it was just like one after the other, just hitting them with like the saddest stories you can imagine. And like, whenever I tell my story in front of politicians, they're always just like stricken and to have all, you know, three of us lined up like that, it was really powerful. And you could see them kind of, you could see that they were moved. And I also felt, you know, some of them on our side probably feel pretty powerless. And the only thing that really they could sink their teeth into in terms of a response was like, we need better enforcement. And you could see, um, You know, I think I suggested a list of things that we need in Portland. Um, And Mayor Wheeler, you could see him perk up a little bit 
when I got to the enforcement, which was just one thing on a long list. And he responded by saying like, yes, we've got to hire more police officers. And I wrote to him afterward and I said, that's not, <laughs> you know, that's not what I was, that's not the, where the emphasis should be. Like, here's all these other things that I wish that we had money for better um, for protected bike lanes, for better lighting, for, you know, redesigning intersections and all of that stuff gets ignored. I, I don't, I guess because it's not politically, it's, it's not, it's not going to be popular with the people who fund those campaigns. So Family for Safe Streets is a group that you've worked with. Can you just share a little bit about like how that group is formed and what kind of work they do? Um, Families for Safe Streets is a national organization and they're based in New York City. And they have chapters all over the U.S., including one in Portland. We are under the umbrella of the Street Trust. So they kind of house us, like our, that's where the website is, but um, we don't have any money. <laughs> so it's kind of, we, we're just like families who have been impacted by traffic violence. Um, and it's, it's really interesting when I am at an event where there's Families for Safe Streets um, members, it's almost all bereaved parents. Right. And I've seen that happen so many times on the these tragic deaths that I've covered over the years where people will come to the fore. Usually it's a mom, that oftentimes a mom the majority of the time. And they're and they're just, you know, welcomed with sort of open arms by politicians. And sometimes I feel like and I wonder if this is how you felt, you know, these politicians and policymakers love putting family for safe streets people in front of cameras to talk about the tragedy and the sadness, but it's almost like they don't, they have a lot more, you know, urgency around thoughts and prayers and not as much around like projects and plans. Right. Do you ever feel like you're more respected for your pain than you are for your, your brain around what you might be able to do to, to prevent these things? Yeah. I mean, ideally I would come in and tell my story and then the people who are experts on preventing things like this would get to work. Right. But instead I, I often feel like I'm just telling my story over and over again. And, um, so I think I and other members of families for safe streets, um, have to be kind of careful about how we deploy our stories. And you see a lot of burnout among the activists because they, there's only so many times you can sit in a public meeting and tell them about the worst day of your life and have nothing happen that you just kind of walk away and try to focus on something else. Cause it feels pretty futile. Yeah. I'm, it's interesting to hear you say that because I've, I've heard that exact thing from, from a mom that I worked with quite a bit and followed pretty closely. Uh, and she went from not just being frustrated by that, but actually being angry. Yeah. She became angry that, you know, well, definitely, obviously angry that like people continue to die for the same reasons that her son had died. But also I sensed some anger at the politicians and people that kept inviting them to things. Yeah. Almost like, yeah, they just wanted to hear the story, but they didn't really want to make an ending to it. Right. Yeah. I think um, one thing that I've learned just from being around other parents and people who have been impacted by traffic violence is really to choose your issues carefully. You know, you have to kind of carve out a little space where you might be able to make a difference um, and fo and put your focus there um, rather than trying to change the tide, you know, like every, we're going to change everyone's mind. Like I'm going to show you a picture of this, of my son and like everyone's going to suddenly realize how bad it's gotten that it's not, doesn't work that way. Yeah. Especially now. I mean, have you noticed a change in these last two years of how, 
people's sort of personal traumas on so many different levels uh, are sort of impacting the ability of like traffic safety activists to tell their stories of trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, you show a picture of some of your son that died in an intersection from a problem that's solvable. Uh, and it's almost like they're thinking, well, gosh, I've got a thousand calls about people on the street that are homeless and we have police that are leaving oh, yep. and, you know, police mm-hmm. violence. And we have people that are not even, I mean, there were years in Portland where I feel like City Hall couldn't even have a meeting. This is before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There's so much protesting going on. Right. Oh, yeah. And I um, I think I step back when it seems like there's something more pressing, um, you know, like during the during the protests last year, it seemed really important to kind of get out of the way with my issues and um, let other members of the community talk about their traumas and and support them, really. Um, I think in so many ways we're, we're connected by our trauma and in the many ways that our government doesn't support families and people, especially most vulnerable people. And so, um, I think I try to be, I try to be generous, um, about supporting other people and causes. And I felt that from other parts of the community as well. Yeah. Interesting. I guess I haven't thought about that a lot, but it makes total sense. You're saying something about like, the vulnerable vulnerable traffic users, which is a term we've been using in activism circles around transportation for for a very long time, are somehow sh- in common cause with other vulnerable people, poor people, uh, you know, black and indigenous people of color who uh, you know have you know racial you know bias against them, uh, uh, you know, people that can't pay rent, uh, people that can't find enough food, right? So people that can't find housing right so there's a lot of vulnerable people so is that this i guess gets to your transition uh from you know 2010 when this tragedy when that tragedy happened to your family now you're you're sort of seeing it as this part of a larger systemic issue am i hearing you right on that and that the potential to have a broader coalition around taking care of these things yeah definitely um i think when i think about it the most is when i see like the climate activist movement um, there's a ton of common ground between traffic safety advocates and climate advocates. And um, I certainly share the concern and the outrage about what's happening to our planet. Um, and I think that um, folks who are working really hard on climate are also really conscious of um, of traffic and and car like cars, you know, the way that cars are just like hurting the quality of life in our cities and and um, damaging the environment. Yeah, and and you you said you know like holding a photo up and thinking that everything everybody's just gonna come and fix the problem like you know it one thing I wanted to ask you about and hear your thoughts are is this idea that and I think your your tragedy the collision on interstate there is similar to which is uh, another one was you know on Hawthorne Boulevard uh, when there was a teenage girl that was struck uh, by someone going really fast in a in a busy commercial area. You know, the the head policymaker at the time, the director of the Portland Bureau of Transportation, basically said, there's nothing we could have done to prevent this. And I'm sure that is like where you stood for a while, but um, I'm sure that's how a lot of people looked at, you know, your tragedy as well. How do you respond to people that say that? It could be reasonable people could say, hey, uh, that was just a terrible situation. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, how would you how do you respond to people that say, hey, you know, things bad things can happen. It's really sad, but there's nothing we can do about it. Especially if 
I mean, this director of the Transportation Bureau saying that, does that frustrate you? I mean, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think activists went out and painted a crosswalk where Fallon Smart died. I mean, there's something that can be done. It's 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 not um, they can't do it. It's that they won't do it. And um, it, it is really frustrating. And I don't have I don't have a great way of changing people's mind. I haven't had a lot of success changing minds because so many people have are starting from, um, you know, the status quo is all they know. They've never thought about what it would be like if our cities were more walkable and it was easier to bike and there were fewer cars. Like they just, they're, they're like you have, I don't know how to expose people to something different. Wait, wait, I, I want to, I want to back up a bit because you have changed a lot of people's minds. And I think, I mean, you do know how to expose people to that. And you've used the power of the pen, right? I mean, so like you're a great writer and you're a great speaker. So you have done those sort of things. And because the way the media market is these days, you know, your work can and is spread around to a lot of people like you've written for a lot of big publications. I mean, I just read something in the New York Times about um, you know, road, you know, road violence and the amount of road crashes in America. And I think coming from you and your experience gives it a little different sort of heft than just a regular reporter, you know, writing something. So you have changed minds in that regard. But what I'm sensing from you is that your sort of daily life and experience moving around hasn't changed. Yeah, it's really interesting because, um, like, I have been just like steeped in a lot of media around like for instance trucks are so big now trucks are too big and you see on on twitter everyone puts their five-year-old in front of a truck grill and is like these trucks are too big and you see that several times a day and then I go home to Montana to visit like my college girlfriends and they all drive f-150s like they all have f-150s in their driveways and I don't know, like that's the bridge I don't know how to cross. You know, they're not reading my op-eds necessarily. They might, but like I'm not, that's not my, what I'm writing about. They they understand the problem of traffic violence, but they don't see their own role in it. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, I don't want to have that conversation with my friends necessarily. Right. But I think other people in, in you know, writing is one way to sort of reach people. Yeah, I can see that. And you know who reads writing, you know, who you know, reads articles are politicians and policymakers. And I think, you know, I thought so- you were going to say people who already agree with you. <laughs> that true. But um, uh, unless they want to come and, you know, say a bunch of really mean things to your story, which yep. I'm sure maybe probably, I don't know if it's happened to you. If it happens to you, I don't even want to talk about it necessarily on, on here because that's just so terrible. But, you know, to go back to, you know, what can we do about, it? I think you sort of, the question, the, I think the answer to that is regulation, right? I mm-hmm. think we have to let the government have the conversations with people that people aren't going to have with right. themselves, yeah. right? I mean, like the vaccine mandate is, I think, a good uh, example of that. Mm-hmm. Vaccine rates are going up. We're reading stories now after everybody protested and said, I'm going to quit my job and we're going to, now they're all getting the vaccine because yeah. they don't want to lose their job, right? So the government came in and handled a, a, a complicated, difficult conversation among people and, and forced some sort of behavior change. Now, I think also with like the big truck thing, I've been thinking that we are building some momentum for some kind of federal rules around the size of automobiles. Yeah. That could that could happen. I could see you writing something about that, you know, given, you know, your experience, especially with the Montana actually, I'm gonna make a note. <laughs> Ask Michelle if I if you know if I can get an, get an article from her about that because the Montana thing and your experience, like that that could be really interesting. So, you know, I, I think 
I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think like government regulation is a way to come in at this point? Oh yeah, definitely. Because I, you know, nobody wants to have those conversations with their friends and family. Those are really hard conversations, but if the government can come in and make it really uncomfortable for you to do things that are bad for the planet and bad for our cities, then yeah, definitely. And I think the problem though, is like, it's hard to know where to like, who regulates trucks? I mean, how do you find that out? You know, like, where can I, where can my story have an impact? Like, I don't want to just like blasting it all over the internet. You don't, you never know what's going to come back from that. So yeah, well, really, well, maybe one of the ways is to take something that you're familiar with that you're already working on, which is vision zero. Mm-hmm. And this is often how policy happens and politics can happen. So, so let's say we want to regulate the size of these huge trucks. There are car standards, right? Which are over here, which that's one of the most highly lobbied things on Capitol Hill is like car regulations, right? Mm-hmm. Which are like everything from fuel mileage to, you know, who, whatever else, you know, like where the seatbelts have to be played. I mean, there's probably, there's like a whole list of federal rules around that. So that's going to be tough to go in and like dictate through that. But oftentimes I've seen politicians and policymakers look at like an existing like soft policy and then attach like hard policy to that. Like a good a good example in Portland was when we got neighborhood greenways adopted as city policy, right? And then we had a smart uh, transportation commissioner who became mayor who realized that instead of going out and trying to ask for lower speed limits all in, on, a, on a large swath of the city, I'm going to just start by saying streets that have previously been designated as neighborhood greenways should get the lower speed limit. Mm-hmm. That was a much easier lift because neighborhood greenways were sort of codified in law, so to speak. Uh, there were a certain amount of like officials and policymakers already knew what that was. It was like a known quantity. Uh, so to say, you know, just, you know, just, okay, let's start with those. And of course now it's beyond neighborhood greenways because it's a good policy to lower speed limits. But I wonder if the same thing could be true with Vision Zero. So it's widely adopted. Lots of policymakers have heard about it. Politically, it has some pull because okay, mm-hmm. it's just a proclamation, a non-actual thing, but it has some heft politically. And I wonder if that's a place where, um, you know, I know that you've done work on Vision Zero. You were just, did I see that right? You did some lobbying. So you, you know about lobbying and, you know, you did some work with Family Faith Safe Streets and at least mm-hmm. getting the ear of our Oregon uh, Congress, Congress members uh, in Oregon here. But I wonder, like, maybe attaching truck regulations and saying it's part of our vision zero approach be a good way to do it. Yeah. I think vision zero is a really good sort of unifying message and we can fit a lot of things in there. And I think that's kind of the, the point of the, you know, all of the lobbying that's been happening around just what is basically a a resolution without much teeth. But if you can get that, you know, written down somewhere in the law, then you can say like, look, you committed to this. So it's time to, you know, here, here's a small policy change you could make to, to contribute toward that big resolution you just signed off on. I, I can see like, you know, the small incremental changes happening. It's still too, too slow though. I mean, yeah, I think part of that problem might be, you know, to speak of policies without teeth. Like I feel like, especially with bereaved families, we spend a lot of time talking at like the 50,000 foot level around these euphemisms and these trite phrases around safe streets and all these things, right? And it's like this emotional based conversation as it should be to some degree, but at some point, and people don't want to have the conversation of like the, the brass tacks of like, how the heck are we going to make driving less lethal? Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I wonder if, if that's something you've ever thought about, or if that's something that like, you know, 
you have an idea about. I don't want to like belabor interstate and Lombard, but to like make this point of like, I think that's a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Someone else is going to get hit. They probably have, but it's underreported and you never hear about it in the news. And it is a good example of like, you could sort of look at that from an engineering perspective and it's not, it's not necessarily a super wide intersection. I mean, there's reasons to think it could be safe on paper, but it's not. So, you know, to get back to like, what would you do if you could, if you, if, you know, if, if, if an elected official asked you, you know, like, what could we do differently in that intersection to make it much less likely that someone is going to make a, you know, do a behavior that's going to result in injury or death? Like, what would that be? I don't feel like I should have to answer that question. Um, I feel like my job is to tell people what happened and get politicians to pay attention. They have their experts. They can redesign the intersection. I've thought about this. It's really hard for me to be in that intersection. I could go out there with a sign, a big picture of my toddler, and I could probably get people to join me, and I could probably make a big stink in the media about it. I don't want to do that. It's too mm. painful. Mm. Yeah. And so, but it's, it sucks that, you know, I feel like that's kind of my only option to, for, a for an intersection for just like a discrete kind of project like that. Yeah. I, I, I totally hear what you're saying about trying to keep some, some borders on your involvement absolutely makes sense. So then wouldn't, would you agree that there is a piece missing? Yes. I mean, uh, well, I should say there's definitely a piece missing because not enough stuff's happening fast enough. But it sounds to me like one of the things I'm taking away from this conversation is that you're doing your part as a bereaved mom. Mm -hmm. And then there's there's a piece of it, not like the action of the change, but there's a, a human piece of it that's not there. It's sort of like politicians aren't showing up like they should. Activists, I also include activists in that. Um, because I think they can kind of also do that policy talk, that sort of like, well, what's the actual structural thing? And you talked about this earlier where there wasn't a huge necessarily like, you know, community response uh, to what happened. So, you know, there's there's never enough of these kind of things, I think, in like sort of the activism ecosystem. We could always uh, want for more. But I, I do hear I think that's kind of what you're saying, right, is there's that that actionable piece that comes after the tragedy mm -hmm. before the new concrete is poured and it's like a giving voice sort of from a more uh, engineering, like a, a different kind of voice than I'm really mad and sad. Yeah, definitely. Um, because we don't have the expertise to make the specific recommendations. Um, we just know it's, it's really dangerous. I know that my baby died because that intersection was unsafe. And so um, I, I wish that I wish that was enough. I, I mean, I've thought about like um, why it is that when politicians get elected, they they just lose their motivation or something. They they kind of get neutered in a way, like they can't just be bold and make bold statements and make bold changes. And um, I I wish I, I wish I knew more about what that shift is for them and like what pressures they're under. Um, yeah. It's, it's, that's a massive like conversation yeah. about like policy, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. It is it is frustrating to me watching that, like because you know, I came onto the scene as as a real advocate and someone really pushing for stuff and I got I got so disappointed in what I saw from City Hall 
that I personally kind of just like left that realm and I, I decided to put up some some borders myself of being like I'm just gonna do the thing of like documenting and boosting signals and showing people stuff because that part of it of like you know how to get politicians t- to do the stuff you want is mm-hmm. is is tough and I, yeah there's a whole there's sort of a missing I do think there's a missing piece there so I think there might be people listening to this that have been through tragedy you know tr- you know transportation related you know street tragedy uh, unfortunately it's just all too common can you share something with people that have been through an experience similar to yours you know something that helped you to um not just you know you're not over it by any stretch you don't i don't think you get over that kind of stuff but something that helped you get along and also sort of stay in the fight the best advice i got after Seamus died um was from my grief therapist who um i i was sitting in her office like probably within a month after the crash and she is somebody who like she works almost exclusively with bereaved parents. And, um, I just was like, so bewildered, uh, the whole situation, just like deep in shock. And I asked her, does, does anyone ever get over this? Does anyone ever heal? It seemed obscene, the word even. And she told me it won't always feel like this. And I think that's kind of a variation on the cliche, you know, this too shall pass. It won't always feel like this. The The first year is awful. The second year is also awful. I mean, it's it continues to be awful, but it also, like, it changes. Taking care of yourself. My husband's doctor told him to drink tea and, and eat soup. And that really helped with his stomach mm, pain. Mm. Um... I think, yeah, doing what you can to, to sleep and um, to kind of just take time. Don't go to work for a while if you don't have to. And, and, and then you just, you just kind of like put one foot in front of the other until the fog starts to lift a little bit. And I think every grieving parent I've ever connected with has figured out a way to find meaning in what happened to them. It's not always like political activism. Um, sometimes it's they're recommitting to their career with new perspective and more compassion. Sometimes it's fundraising for a cause or or some something in their community that they find meaningful. And I think in a lot of ways it's it's almost like finding a place to put that love for your child because they're not there anymore. So you kind of have to channel that somewhere else. And the result is often really beautiful. Um, and so I think for anyone who experiences something like what my family did, there is, I don't want to say there is, you know, good that comes out of it, but it's not all bad, I guess I would say. There's a lot of just like amazing people in the world who are going to help you. And it's good to rely on other people, accept help, um, take time, take care of yourself. I'm also like totally willing to connect with people. Um, I'm pretty easy to find online. And so I can connect them to more concrete resources and make book recommendations and, you know, introduce them to my therapist if they want. But, um, yeah. Well, I'm really grateful that you're still in the community making things better. And I think a lot of other people are as well. And you answered my, my last question, which was how can people, uh, find your work and, um, you know, continue to be inspired by you and learn from, from some of the stuff that you're sharing. 
Um, I have a website that has a list of all of the essays and op-eds that I've published. It's mdewberry.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at DewberryPie. And that's D-U-B-A-R-R-Y-P-I-E. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing, Michelle. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Michelle Dewberry, a volunteer with Families for Safe Streets, who's pushing to make Portland streets places where it's safe to push a stroller. This podcast is made possible by Bike Portland subscribers, advertisers, and financial supporters. If you're not one already, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. Our music is by Josh Hartnell. You can subscribe and find more episodes on our website at bikeportland.org podcast. I'm Bike Portland's editor and publisher, Jonathan Moss. And until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the streets.